guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative curve here in Asia. Before we get started today, I just wanted to let you guys know that I've started a one-on-one career coaching program. So for those of you who might be interested in finding out more, feel free to send me a message via Instagram at ongjennifer underscore. I've got a ton of content posted up on Instagram as well, so definitely go check it out if you're interested. All right, so back to the episode. Today, I'm really excited to have Carolyn Yim join us. Carolyn is the founder of Plynets, a direct-to-consumer knitwear brand. She actually grew up in Hong Kong and came from a family business in cashmere manufacturing. She initially had no plans of returning back to the family business. It wasn't until her father got sick that she decided to explore returning back. It all started off in search of a warmer pair of pants as she lived through the cold, cold winters in New York. This gave rise to her first product, a pair of cashmere pants with a tailored, clean, comfortable fit. This eventually sprouted into an entire direct-to-consumer brand, Plynets, and has since expanded into wholesale relationships with Lane Crawford and Farfetch, and even expanded into private labels. So before she started all of this, what was Carolyn doing? Well, she studied English and comparative literature at Columbia, and after graduating, worked at Saks Fifth Avenue, Jack Dorsey, and caring-funded e-commerce startup Fancy.com. All right, I'll hand over now to Carolyn to tell her story on how she helped to modernize her family's existing manufacturing business and built Plynets and more. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Super happy to have you on board. So I kind of want to just get started all the way at the very beginning. You went to Columbia, majored in English. How did you go from that to starting Plynets? When you were graduating from school and looking for jobs, what were you thinking in terms of your career? I always had an interest in fashion. So even during school, so it was always in fashion and I had also taken one particular course at Columbia that was with the MBA program, which is about luxury fashion, and also how to launch a luxury brand, how to pretty much do the business of fashion, which really opened my mind. And that was really my starting point of having this curiosity about it. It also added that my family works in clothing and manufacturing. My mother, she ran a little retail store that my grandmother designed the clothing for and then my dad would manufacture for. So during the summer, I would go after school to help her out and help re-merchandise the little space in Causeway Bay. So now that I think back about it, it's very natural that this is continuously what I'm doing. And as for why English literature, I often think about it in a very simple way. Fashion is one type of vocabulary that we can use to understand the world. And I always like to watch style change and just like in literature too, the interesting forms of sentences, how they come together and wordplay that come together. Were you drawn to fashion at a pretty young age already? Was this something even before college you were thinking about? Before college and high school is hilarious because fashion was a great source of anxiety for me. I always wanted the newest Quicksilver. I wanted the newest Skechers. I wanted Skechers so much that I lied to my mother and said, my feet are getting bigger. I need a bigger size up. I have worn size five shoes since puberty. But then I would lie to her and be like, no, 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 I swear I need bigger shoes. I went up to size six and then I went up to size seven. And then went up to size eight, almost double my current shoe. And one time in, in PE class, where I think we were playing baseball, one of my classmates just pointed at me and was like, your feet are really big. Like, why are they so big? And then that, to me, it was the first moment of shame caused by clothing. So I think that really struck indelibly on my mind, the fact that clothing can bring identity problems so (laughs) I didn't have the traditional fashion students love of fashion the way they love like Galliano or they would love Vivian Westwood but I always viewed it as like a social object about identity and sociology and anthropology as opposed to form and beauty oh very very interesting (laughs) such a fascinating anecdote (laughs) 
So perhaps it's because of that that I always felt like I was wearing the wrong thing, that this pursuit in my mind of wearing the right thing became more and more in my forethought, as opposed to an attraction towards fashion itself. And another thing might be because my father and my grandmother, because they work in this industry. When we have Chinese New Year, we would go to the malls like IFC, Pacific Place, and walk all the shops. And he would go to all the sweaters, and he'd be like inspecting it. And he'd say, "I can do this better. Oh, this part is interesting. Let's try this out." And it was always just part of how we bonded and how we interacted. So that also might be to do with my behavior with clothing now. And we still do this. My dad and I would send WhatsApps back and forth of. Sweaters that we like—it's very much in our, our communication. It's our vocabulary. So I guess that kind of makes sense. In that, after you graduated from school, you were like, "Okay, I'm, I'm quite drawn to fashion. Let me go into the fashion space."、Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the roles that you were in in fashion when、mm-hmm. you joined, like Saks or Jack Dorsey. I would be dishonest if I were to claim that I was anything other than the lowly merchandise assistant. Because that is what you are when you start out in fashion. You start in the lowest rung. You are entering orders. You are pulling up the reports of the sales. But to me, that was very eye-opening because the privilege of that is I could just be a fly on the wall. At Saks, I was in the department called European Couture, so we merchandised and bought Chanel and Valentino, all the biggest heavy hitters in the fashion industry. I would be in the room with my buyer and our GMM as they were negotiating for more exclusives or certain payment terms and all these other things. That now I look back, you have to have that sturdy backbone for your business. The merchandise must look good and sell, but you also have to know your numbers and you have to know your customer. All these things come together, and it's really important. And. Were you also at the same time thinking about going into the family business, or you you made a conscious decision to actually not do that and actually just go work for someone else? With my parents, they never pressured me to join the family business, even to this day, and it wasn't particularly on my mind. Although my dad would ask questions such as, "What's in trend now? Can you tell us more about what you see at the runway?" and I, I would. Share this information. Were you already at the back of your mind thinking, "Oh, I would love to start my own company at some point"? I would say it was a very clear idea. I did want to start my own business, but in a very naive way, because I think it's incredibly risky. You cannot deny the statistics of how many small businesses do fail. So you have to have a certain sense of stubbornness and innocence to do it. But I think it's also a sense of Optimism that we can have the skills to make it work. And when did you have this idea, or I guess, when did you decide to really pursue your own business? It was a confluence of things to lead up to this point. So at that time, my dad was sick, so I was concerned about what would happen to him and also our business. So I decided to. Quit my job and spend time with him and learn from him about his business. This is also around the time when a lot of e-commerce companies were popping up. This is early Everlane and early Warby Parker, and the competition was very small. Since we have our own factory, I thought that we could do this very easily. I know how to use Squarespace, set up a website. I did everything in my bedroom, shot everything on my bed sheets with the white background and photoshopped and. Just went from there, and then my dad also at the same time saw the opportunity of web business, and had often brought it up at dinner, saying, "On、oh, no, online business is really the way to go." So it made sense that I could do this to support my family's business and also have a creative outlet for myself to express my artistic and creative interest in design. Got it. Okay, so you basically decided, all right, I'm gonna take the knowledge and the know-how from my family, the connections. I guess you guys had your own manufacturing capabilities. You were doing the designing, and then、mm-hmm. you set up like the website and everything. At that point, were you like, 
should I go test out if there's any interest or demand for my product? Yeah, we actually, in fact, did test with customers because our first product was quite different to what we traditionally made. So the thesis I had, having lived in New York, was so cold all the time, and none of the clothes I had was warm enough, especially for my bottoms and my pants. So I had very thick down coats, but I always had to wear two pairs of pants <laughs> underneath my jeans. And there was one particular <laughs> winter where it was snow apocalypse. I remember trudging home after working very late, and my pants were completely soaked through because of the snow. And I just sat down thinking there had to be a better way. I had got a pair of basic cashmere leggings, but very immediately they peeled very quickly and they were just unwearable. And to me, the price was just not worth it. I couldn't imagine it being full price for anybody for that quality. So I went to ask my dad if there's something we could do about this to make like a warmer pant that is also more compact and tight. And at the same time, while I was working at Saks. I was exposed to a couple of legacy brands. This one called Acris and St. John. They dress more of the mature woman, the working CEO. Product quality is very high, but the price is also very high. But I remember there's always this very particular pant that's very soft, where it could give the woman a nice fit, but it was at the same time very tailored and clean and comfortable. And I knew that this had an existing demand because across the brands that we had. The pant business always was a consistent bread and butter that they wouldn't change, and every season it would be the same. So I knew that this was an existing market, and I tested it out by making many different versions. At first, we actually had some hiccups because we've never made such a product before that was so structured and tight. But it took us over a year experimenting between my mom and I. We would try it out at home ourselves until we found the right fit. In the end, we made this pant that. I call the fabric technical merino, and this was actually right before the time of athleisure and the rise of technical natural materials, which now we also take for granted. But this product proved to be a hit, especially among my mom's friends who also share this predicament about finding the right work pant or the right warm pant. And then I was also very lucky to be on a retail platform called Spring. It launched. With my brand Planets as one of the key brands, and because of the marketing and the consumer base, we were just propelled to the top very quickly. I remember with one Super Bowl Sunday, that was where we launched our product. I turned on my phone, and suddenly, like a hundred pieces sold instantly, and I was just so shocked. I couldn't believe that. But to me, I think that was a Place where I could really test out the product, and it was such a range of customers that I was able to see what they thought. And after that, we did another testing round. I sent out a friends and family email, gave everyone a discount code to see I'm launching this thing. If you want to try it, here's it, just at cost, and tell me what you think. So that was very helpful too, and that actually helped me develop a couple more improvements. Into what our pen is currently today. Very interesting. So you basically started off with one product、mm. for your brand, and how did you decide to partner with Spring? And how did、so、you even it, find them? Now that you ask me, I actually don't remember. I think today the startup world is just so crowded, and there's another new app all the time, another website all the time. But at that time, it was perhaps one of the strongest and. Very obvious ones, and I remember I just had to reach out and pitch them and talk about my product. I remember bringing them in to the creative officer April, and she loved the pants. And I had a lot of these. I would say it's like throwing at the wall to see what sticks. Instances early on because a I was young, I didn't know what I was looking for. B at the same time also didn't know where my product fits. So I actually had tested out at Equinox gyms to see if it was like a athletic product. I also tested it with another shopping app called PS Department that has now disappeared, but it was for、uh, private shoppers. And ultimately, what has proven to me that companies do come and go, but in the end, what matters is people and your customer. If you are able to find a way to communicate the context and the story of your product, and customers really like that product. That outlasts everything else. It outlasts 
snazzy business models that outlast the cool marketing. You have to have your foundations down or else it'll come and go. At that point in time, were you thinking I would start a direct-to-consumer brand and this was just one avenue to do mm. advertising? Yeah. In the beginning, it was purely direct-to-consumer at that time because our product strategy was that our pricing was more competitive since we were directly from the factory. And then we went into wholesale because that quickly changed. So, of course, the customer acquisition costs quickly became super expensive for direct-to-consumer brands because of Google ads and Facebook ads. So while you're saving money on traditional routes of having a retail store and having upfront inventory and hiring sales staff, you now have this cost of digital customer acquisition that's very, very expensive. So that's why old models then came back, such as wholesale, because customer acquisition and distribution still stands very strong. And it does have that. That's why that model was there in that place. So in a way, it was quite reactionary to what was happening around me. And I knew since I was not VC funded, I could never compete with other direct-to-consumer brands. And I had to go on a route that was much more rooted in my product and where I can be closer to my customer as opposed to going the route where I didn't feel that I could gain an advantage by competing just on direct-to-consumer. Mm, okay. So... I do have lots of questions around like why you chose not to be VC backed and, and all that, but I, I will get into that later. I, yeah. I do want to know. So in this early days where you were like testing out uh, one pair of pants, reception was pretty strong on spring mm -hmm. and you were trying to learn who your customer was at that point in time. How did you kind of figure out who your ideal or target customer was? Mm -hmm. It was in a way through A-B testing by pricing it at different points and changing the consumer message via the email marketing or via the web copy. So I had found that if I had priced way too low, that customer is somehow more likely to return the product, maybe because of confluence of things, of not understanding that product, not understanding the quality, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but... I think it's just different priorities. But then I noticed when I started to price it higher, the older customer would purchase the pants and would understand it and would buy multiples and re be repeat customers. So that's how I landed at a higher price point for the pants. So the current ones that we do have do start at 350 as opposed to, I think one time we did try testing it at 98. I was going to say that it was also a reaction based on our capacity because we still are independent and To be a $98 product, I think you have to have a different business operation in the back versus if you were a $350 product and your operation is different. This is going to sound blasphemous, but I've never done Facebook ads. My A-B testing was through our existing customer base. We built up a organic word of mouth following from spring and then through a couple of lucky press pieces early on. So I was able to get a lot of emails So I tested through friends and family and also the email list. I think I was in the right place at the right time where I had started early enough. Now there's 50 million e-commerce brands out there, but at that time there was no other knitwear brand. There was very little cashmere brands. The point of entry was lower, so we were kind of the only ones. So I guess in those early days, you were pretty lucky in that you got quite a bit of good traction because there weren't a lot of competitors in that, in that space. So um, you guys were kind of like a new idea, something that was like very exciting that people wanted to write about and try. I guess before all of this, did you already have like a ton of pants produced or you were like, let's just produce like maybe 50 pants and see what the reception is? So I knew early on that inventory is the death of all retail companies, especially too much of the same unsold inventory. Of course, that was where having my manufacturing support was very crucial because at the same time, I was also working with the factory and I knew that we had to shift the factory to a direction that is more in line with how consumers shop today online. Our old model was that things take six months from developing to idea, to sample, and then to production. And sometimes even up to one year. And the mentality of a lot of my colleagues were, okay, we actually don't have to perfect it the first time because there's going to be the second sample, third sample, and then we can slowly figure it out. But Perhaps because of my own impatience, plus working with our own online distribution, 
I knew we had to cut that to much leaner, shorter development to production time so that we can meet demand and so that we could be responsive to see what actually sells. And that's the invisible advantage of direct-to-consumer is that you can have the choice of playing with what actually works in the market, testing it out before you produce a lot of it. So we always try to keep our inventory tight and very lean and not to overproduce. And now our factory is also aligned to help other customers that we have to produce that way. So in this process, you actually also revamped the existing manufacturing process that your mm-hmm. family has, which is mm-hmm. super cool. So not just modernizing the brand in terms of the channels that you guys are trying to distribute to, but also modernizing the way that you guys uh, operate yeah. and create in, in terms of the manufacturing side. Okay, but anyway, so back to Planet. So, you know, things are going pretty well. You've kind of figured out your target audience, you figured out your price point through A-B testing using the existing email base. I did want to ask, because you mentioned that you didn't do any Facebook ads. What was the reason behind that? I think I knew that I couldn't compete on it. I'm not trying to claim that it doesn't work for anybody. I think for me, just my brand was always so organic and very personal and very word of mouth driven that I didn't step into that world because I felt like it would be disingenuous when I did that. I think it can work very well and there's proven that for other brands that can do very well but I just personally don't ever click on ads but I also am aware that as we have more data for Instagram (laughs) and our uses and our likes it's getting a bit more closer to finding the right audience for you but for me I prefer the long form way I would write newsletters and about music and art and I think that way of customer acquisition where it's about enlightening and enriching the customer about all the other facets of their lives rather than here's another ad about something you have to buy. Sometimes selling is so complex because you're pretty much telling someone if they don't buy this thing, they're not good enough, which is a message I never want to say. So I try to find alternate ways to convey, okay, if you happen to need this product, happen to need a sweater or a pant, here we are. And I try to, in my newsletters, keep it heartwarming and show a value rather than content for content's sake. That to me, perhaps also because of my literature background, I try to keep it meaningful. And I think having that integrity in my messaging, I hope shows through in my product too. I do think that what really stands out for me, at least, is your very clear sense of brand, whether it is in the tone of voice that you use and the way that you write, and also in the images that you post, I think. It's a very clear and strong sense of brand. Do you feel like this was something very deliberate that you put time and effort into building it up? And do you feel like because you had such a strong brand that that was really one of the biggest levers for growing for you? Mm. It seemed clear to me when I started first making my more professional images with my collaborators, Anya and Lucy, who I do thank for helping me make such beautiful artistic work was that I also wanted images that would last. I remember very clearly that I didn't want to make fashion images that would just be meaningless. I wanted images that could still hang up on my wall and that I would be proud to look at 10 years, 20 years, 50 years later. Perhaps that's a symptom of having a family business that's much older than I am. So kind of constantly thinking about longevity rather than speed. With my images now, I think A, because it's so personal to me and it is extension of me, that's why it's consistent. But I also try to, as much as possible, be cognizant about what I am saying and not saying and trying to not say messages of lack. I think the message of lack is often used too much in women's advertising to say that if you don't have this, you need this. But we don't need any of this stuff. I really, really try to use this lens of education about the material so that you can be an informed consumer. It's not just for planets, but if you went to a mall or a store, you could learn to know how to purchase clothing. And maybe that comes from even my own experience with my dad when we went walking around the malls that he would always say, okay, look at this. This is important. This is a sign of a good quality. This is not good. This is overpriced. So I'm sort of reiterating the things I learned from my parents 
because I felt like that was such a great tool for understanding to see past the logos and the trend and the hype of it, but to see it as it is because that's what we do and that's what we make. So I wish that my customers would understand that too. And I actually also noticed that in your website, even when describing your items, you use very technical terms. Maybe share a little bit about how technical actually knitwear and, yeah. and making all this is. I would say it's actually like an engineer's dream if you were to make clothing because it's a very mathematical process. When you make every sweater, you have to first start with a yarn. And at the yarn, you have to make sure the tension, i.e., Pretty much just got a lot of numbers that you have to measure out to make sure the ratios and the formulas all add up. You have to make sure the push and the pull is the right ratio or else it'll be too weak. So that's why you have a lot of bad sweaters out there that warp or shrink in the wash. In fact, good sweaters should never shrink. All of our sweaters never shrink in the wash. The reason it shrinks is because the producer slash the brand is skimping on yarn and the tension is too loose. So that when it goes through the wash, it shrinks because there's all these gaps in the yarn. But all our knits, we emphasize doing it in tight tension so that it's a very physically stable structure. You can see it when you lay your sweater down. The hem of the garment needs to lay flat. If it's not flat, if it bunches up, that shows the tension is not accurate, that someone was kind of lazy in the knitting process. So that's a trick when you go to the store and you can see, just like hold it up or like lay it to see if the ribs and the cuffs, if this area is like pulling in, that's called honeycombing, or if it's flat, that's when it's a good sweater. Wow, interesting. Yeah. That, that's so fascinating. Like, yeah, I it's... Never <laughs> now you know. That totally makes sense why sweaters shrink then, if the tension wasn't right. Yeah, because sweaters, when you make it in the process, you have to wash it. So inherently, all these materials like cotton, wool, cashmere, silk, they all are of natural organic sources and they have water. So it doesn't make sense that it cannot be washed. And this mythology about dry clean only sweaters is to cover up a poorly made sweater i think oh that's so interesting do you feel like it's because of fast fashion that a lot of the quality of the items have kind of gone down in the fashion mm -hmm. industry as well oh my god yeah i like to use the analogy of food for clothing and i still think we're in the white bread phase of clothing that you mentioned earlier that i like to use vocabulary especially more technical vocabulary around clothing and i think Again, because of my literature background, I think you kind of have to articulate and build out the words around something to understand it. So I make that a big point. But when we, because of fast fashion, the only thing we look at when we look at a piece of clothing is the appearance of it. But we don't look at all the other things within it, from the construction to the material. We kind of are just blind to it because we never experience another way. Like if we just grew up eating a lot of white bread and not knowing what a truly leavened sourdough should taste like. So I think it's heavily important that we build out the language for well-made clothing. So that's why I put so much emphasis on my website to talk about the technicalities and the granular labels so that this is now a vocabulary you can take with you to understand why this is even better made than fast fashion. I know that we touched upon this quite briefly earlier mm -hmm. about venture-backed or not venture-backed, and you decided not to actually go out and fundraise. What were your thoughts around, you know, not going down that path? I think for a product, especially a physical or inventory product, it's almost suicidal to do venture-backed business because you cannot reach the growth that VCs look for. It makes sense if you have a technology business that can scale at that speed and rate that they want, but to make a niche product like a sweater VC funding in a way would end up hurting the business. I think it depends on what you think is important, but for me, product is first. And when you go down the route of VC funding, and I think a lot of private equity funding as well for apparel brands, often use the first cut for costs is actually in the product and in manufacturing and I never wanted my product to be lesser because to me, there would be no meaning in having my business. So you can see now 
like modern current Everlane, the quality really isn't there, and it really does show from that end. It's it doesn't it didn't make sense to me for what I was doing. Yeah, I think I was also reading somewhere that J Crew used to have much better quality items before oh, they got bought by like a private equity company, who then asked mm-hmm. them to cut costs, and so then their mm-hmm. items now are just not quite on par yeah. with what their quality used to be. As the factory, we have a lot of insight on this end because we're the ones who get affected when a company changes their financial situation. So. Whenever some of our clients got PE or VC funding, we would just notice the quality that they wanted was a lot lower, and then we would just see it play out where they would start to lose customers, their things would start to get diluted, and it sort of would have a very sad death. And having seen so many brands come and go like that, like a fast rise and a fast fall, that wasn't the luxury that we had. Like we, we had to. I think because we were been around for a while, we need to keep that thinking in mind. Like I can't just rush in, rush in and change, and go too fast. We have to keep slow and steady. And to me, that was about knowing our limits and knowing our weaknesses, because that's to me as important when you have your businesses. You know your strengths and you know your limitations. And that for us was a limitation. We cannot go at that speed, and we cannot go at that growth. And ultimately, you also need to know why you're in the business. If you don't, it's very easy to get swept up and go with what other people want from you rather than what you want. How do you actually balance that? Because I know sometimes that's quite difficult to do—to kind of balance what you are internally. Feeling versus what the market is also telling you. It doesn't even have to be about your business. It could even be more like personal. Like I think mm-hmm. tying it back into overall um, what my podcast really is trying to share is just kind of finding the balance between staying true to who you are versus mm-hmm. you know a lot of what society tells you is what you should do. I really think you have to listen to what your intuition says and you have to follow your gut. As corny as that sounds, it takes a lot to really quiet out. All the outside noise and focus on what you know, because when you have the doubts and when you have the questions, that's when you have the negativity, and that's when you have the constant, endless barrage of what ifs and the oh nos. If you don't believe in yourself and you don't believe in what you're doing, who will believe in you? You have to be your first supporter and your first champion, and then things will fall into place. When I first started my business, there's of course a lot of people who were saying. No one cares about all this stuff about yarn. Women just want sexy things. Women just want to look cute. But that never really resonated with me. It's perhaps one of the best things that I stuck with my intuition because then I was able to find through my social media channels and just staying true to who I am. Other people who felt like this, and I've become this rather niche platform for other women who also don't feel like they want to just be looking cute. Who actually value a lot of the technical and specific knowledge around clothing? So I think it's really important that you have to follow that intuition. Yeah, that's what I've slowly learned over the years. Is just being true to who you are、mm-hmm. is really <laughs> the way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's constantly a battle, of course, but in the end, it comes down to that—to listen to your body and your gut. Yeah, for sure. So, a couple more questions about your business. I know you started off as like direct to consumer.、Uh, maybe walk us through the decision to do wholesale. I know you're in Lane Crawford、uh, through wholesale, but I also know that you then started a second line, which is Drayden.、Mm-hmm. So maybe、mm-hmm. share a little bit more about that one as well. Because again, of seeing all the customers come and go at my family's factory, I knew I had to have a diversified portfolio of products. So. I had to have my direct-to-consumer channel. I have to also have wholesale, especially strategic partners that can bring more legitimacy via their institutional reputation, such as Lane Crawford and Browns and Farfetch, because that also helps with the perception of the brand, especially for fashion. And in addition to that, I also do private label. I do designing for other brands as well. That to me is actually how I have a stable cash flow. Throughout the entire year, 
that to me was also very important. And how did you find or get your foot in the door with these wholesale, like Lane Crawford, Farfetch? Farfetch was a funny story because I was actually showing my collection the first time in Shanghai Fashion Week. This is about 2018, where nothing was really set in stone and established yet, unlike New York or Paris Fashion Week. But in Shanghai, everyone was a startup brand. So it was just really exciting to be there.、But、anyway, I was eating a spring roll during my lunch break, and I see this lady on crutches come into the showroom, and she's having a hard time communicating with the security guard who only spoke Chinese. I just walk over and help translate. Like, do you need anything? Like, this lady wants to go in. She left her badge at the hotel, so she went in, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I'm like the GMM for." Browns. I was like, "Oh my god!" So it was very serendipitous, and I just showed her my collection, and she loved it and got my information down. And then, of course, takes a lot of repeat follow-ups. You have to do that, and then trying to make yourself very available. Really, a process of understanding what they need, and as opposed to okay, here is what I am. I always try to make it a point to think about what their business is, how I can help them through my business. So I learned that they are looking for new Chinese designers, but I think they also need to make sure that it works for their London customers, and that they were particularly looking for a new knitwear. So I would ask a lot of questions, hear what they need, and then try to work within their needs with what I have. I flew to London afterwards a couple of times, kept asking a lot of questions until they finally. We're happy with the right price and the right colors, and we developed an exclusive collection for them. And I would say the same happened for Lane Crawford. It was also a lot of pursuit, a lot of listening until the right time and the right place happened. That's amazing, honestly. That's so serendipitous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to keep your eyes open. You have to always listen. I think sometimes in the past. You're told that you should have a three-minute pitch, but I think that is not fully the right way. In fact, you should listen. If you listen to what they might need, you could find a way to help them. And I go into business with this very open-minded generosity to see how I can help others with my business, and often that has been proven successful for both parties. So I wanted to ask for someone who is. Thinking about starting a direct-to-consumer fashion brand,、mm-hmm. who may not have the manufacturing background or,、uh, mm-hmm. I guess, any relationships, what would you recommend them to do?、Mm-hmm. How would you get started if you were them? I would visit a lot of factories, try to go on Alibaba, try to find any possible source, ask any designer friends, ask about their suppliers, get a lot of information, and go physically yourself to see all of them. Always. Ask a lot of questions first. Don't take the first one from the get-go, and see what your own advantages and what their advantages. Because these factories also have their own customers. They could have their own direct-to-consumer brands. So, what is your angle? What is your differentiation? Once you figure that out, you then take the step of your marketing differentiation, your product differentiation, and customer differentiation. Everything needs to be. What is your leg up on all of it? Because otherwise. If you don't have that, it's gonna be quite difficult. And what would you say is like the minimum order that you should be prepared to spend, or like the amount、it's、of money so, that, like, if I was today to start my own like direct-to-consumer、um, fashion、mm-hmm. company, how much money would you recommend that I have set aside to place an order for、uh, for the factory、mm-hmm. to even like you know con- consider me? <laughs>、mm-hmm. So, if you think about China, it's quite tough because the minimums can range from like five hundred to thousand. So, in a way, you are better off working with independent producers. Who there's even in New York a lot of, if in terms of knitting, there's a lot of individuals who hand knit, and maybe that's a good way to start. And but in terms of how much to set aside, I hesitate because it could be such a range. Like inventory is such a pain. And until you have the proof of concept, it's quite tough. Like maybe、um, quarter million to half a million, because you need that runway, or else. You. I had a friend who just did her own business that way, and it was very tough. Because then, she, if you sit on all this unsold inventory, and you put all your cash in the product rather than in the marketing and the distribution, it's. 
it's very hard to move things out. So I think you need to be very cautious of what that is. And maybe if ideally you can strike some deal with your factory, say if you find that they have a certain ready-made good and they have a lot of inventory of it, you could say, okay, if you give me this, I can help you sell this, but you at a lower minimum, then I c- can you give me a deal for like this other product? Try to always be smart about it and negotiate with your supplier to find something that can help them. You can find a way to work that into what you need. I think that again goes back to your point about listening sometimes and being mm-hmm. of value to the other person, not just stating mm-hmm. what you want, but also offering help in return. I think that's a, such a fascinating mentality because so often when you think about starting a business, you're like, what do I need? Where do I go? Mm-hmm. It's very like me, me, me centric. There's a lot of value in actually having a, a two-way street when doing business mm-hmm. and trying to understand what does your supplier needs and how can you help your suppliers so that they can also in return help you. I know this is going to be such a general question, but any advice for someone who is thinking about starting their own company? that you wish you knew before embarking on this journey yourself? Yeah, I think you have to have a very strong mental state or you have to be prepared to have a lot of challenges and have a lot of doubt that would arise. But you have to have a method of getting out of it, be it a strong support system or knowing your body well to say, okay, if I get stressed, I need to go for a run or do yoga. Because again, you are your business. So if you're not in good shape, your business will suffer. I think that's why I've become a rather optimistic person. And you then start to see all the opportunities and things. You let go of a lot of things you can't control because you have no choice or else you will just be weighted down by all the problems and obstacles. And in the, in the end, I think having a business is just being really good at solving problems. Like problems no longer are negative, but it's just like another thing that arises and you have to tackle it and then it'll pass. Like Jesus learning to arrive, surf the waves. Some, um, like, uh, I think that's a certain business approach to the founder of Patagonia. He was an avid hiker and surfer. And both those activities required you to be very present so that you can face each wave or each rock you climb you stay calm to face it and then you can bypass it but if you panic while you're climbing you will fall and it was likely you will injure yourself so i take that mentality into my business too you can't be overwhelmed by the negative like the things that arise are just events and you will find a way to overcome it as opposed to oh my god i lost all my customers this year from covid if you think about it just in that framework that is where it gets challenging but if you can reframe it to okay Currently, wholesale is not working during the pandemic. What other ways are people responding with? You look for the opportunity. You remain optimistic. You look for the silver lining. That way, there's always a window out. I think, yeah, that mindset about being calm and not being overwhelmed by all these things that inevitably get thrown at you. But that also is not something that's easy to master. So kudos to you to be able to handle all of this calmly. But I do want to ask you, how has COVID Mm -hmm. affected your business? Yeah, COVID has affected my US and my UK wholesale business the most. And as a result, I have pivoted to growing more direct-to-consumer in the US, even much more than I had before, and also more in China. In a way, again, it's always about seeing where the opportunity is. This year, as well, there's been a lot of reflection about what I've been doing with Planets and how I can improve. So a lot of that is now building out a much more consistent product range and being able to get the right distribution and the right messaging and storytelling in place that I never really thought about in a full 360 way. I think in the past, I was sort of impatiently chasing one thing and the next thing as opposed to looking at it holistically. So this last year has been very helpful for me to recalibrate and figure out the next steps. With our direct-to-consumer, we have been working with Jenny Walton, who's a friend and a style influencer on Instagram. She is also an illustrator. With her, we've been changing to models where our business is per drop, as opposed to the wholesale model twice a year. And this makes a lot of sense for us because we can continue to test our product much faster and on niche customers. I think my goal would to be able to do this at a larger scale with 
couple of different people with their, their different fans and followers and also into different product ranges such as into lifestyle and home. Do you feel like you have a mentor in this whole process? It sounds like your parents and your dad in particular is someone that has great influence in um, mm -hmm. your life. Would you say that he's your mentor or do you have other mentors out there? And if so, how mm. did you go about finding them? Yeah, I would say my family, my mother, my father, my brother, they all play different roles in being my mentors or advisors. They do shape who I am and they do understand me very well. And they also all bring very different points of view. Through my work, I also have met people who guide me a lot. One particular mentor to me is a lady who helped me get into Leighton Crawford. Actually, she was the buyer at the time. To this day, she still helps me with my collection. And she's very supportive of young designers and new designers. I think that comes down to just being very open to share what you need and asking for help because a lot of people do want to help you. As opposed to, I think, a mentorship structure in the past, I thought it would be like, okay, you will be my mentor. You help, like, you will guide me through life. It's more like... I think it comes through having a genuine relationship with someone and being willing to show vulnerability. I think we all know how important having relationships are in starting your own business. What would you say has worked out really well for you in terms of the way that you build relationships? Vulnerability, being yourself, helping other people and generosity. I genuinely believe in paying it forward and being very open. And that way you will meet people that really resonate with you and that you like. When you're excited about something, your eyes will sparkle and people know that spark too. So once you are yourself, you can speak from your heart. People will find that much more memorable. And maybe down the road, they will think about something that could help you and they might reach out in that way. So actually a lot of the connections for my business is usually in these really serendipitous situations. Interesting. And last question for you, which is one question I always ask all of my guests, is that in the Western world, people are more like, if I follow my dreams, eventually the money will come. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Asia, I think there's much more a fear around pursuing mm -hmm. your dreams because you are worried about financial security. I wanted to hear your thoughts on balancing both of these. Mm -hmm. Did you at any point feel like you had to pursue something a bit more corporate-y or, or you actually didn't really face this yourself? Yeah, it's definitely something I think about a lot because I think now we're at the time where a lot of my peers are entering much more senior positions at their jobs and it's definitely a very different lifestyle. But of course, I suppose maybe it's like a grass is greener sort of mentality. Between pursuing the Western view of passion versus financial stability, I do think you have to be smart. If you're going to pursue your passion of making sweaters, then you better make the best sweater out there. You have to still do it excellently. Also understand what are the consequences. Like, are you willing to take a pay cut? Are you willing to move somewhere where your rent is cheap? What are your own boundaries for that? I guess the line, though, is if you're passionate about something, you will love to do it and you will constantly think about it day and night, even when you're not working. And because you just love doing it so much, you eventually will find your own way of doing it. But then I think many people are like, well, I don't have a passion, so what do I do? I think then you just try to get really good at something because... One line I heard from someone was like, this might not be your passion until you do it so well and you do it much better than everyone else that it then becomes eventually your passion. And that's eventually what I found because to me, knitwear, I wasn't born with a passion for it. I went to Columbia for literature and not for knitwear. But over time, I just do it so much and know it so well that it's in, ingrained in me. I'm actually surprised to hear that for you, knitwear wasn't your passion. And so it's interesting mm -hmm. to see that you are able to find joy in what you're doing now. And also you have been able to incorporate your love of literature mm -hmm. into what you're doing today. Just because you're not the traditional route of your passion, like not a writer, doesn't mean you have to ignore it. You can still continue to read. You share the things you like to read. You can still write when you can. For instance, I enjoy writing my interview responses or taking more creativity with my copy writing, but finding other outlets that are non-traditional for what you care about. I think that's really good advice and such an interesting way of answering this question because I think sometimes people are a bit idealistic or sometimes a bit more realistic with the way that they answer this question. And I feel like you've actually been 
quite realistic in the sense that sometimes there are certain things that are expected of you and that you do want to do because it is a family business and there are circumstances that you feel like you need to you know be a part of that but also then you are still able to bring in who you are and stay true to who you are in the process and uh, incorporate your love for language into the brand so I think that that's, mm. that's super interesting and yeah I just wanted to say thank you so much for all your time today we spoke for a really long time so really thank appreciate you um, I really enjoyed it. And there you have it, my conversation with Carolyn. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, stay true to who you are. You can see that across her brand. She brings in aspects of her love for literature into her copywriting and has built a brand that is a natural extension of who she is. Two, if you're not entirely sure about your price point or target audience at the beginning, just put yourself out there and do some A-B testing. From those tests, she learned that with a higher price point, she was able to attract an older customer who was less likely to return the item. Three, listen and offer value. For example, through her newsletters, instead of writing copy to try to push and sell products, she tries to offer value and educate instead. This was also how she managed to get her foot in the door to sell at Farfetch. And this is what she would also highly recommend doing if you were to work with a new manufacturer or a new supplier. Four, when evaluating if you should be a venture-backed business, make sure that you are prepared for the sort of growth that VCs expect from you and see if that growth makes sense for you and for your business. Coming from a family business that existed for three generations gave her a different perspective, that of longevity rather than speed which also made it easy for her to recognize that her business is not meant to be a venture-backed business. Five, when running a business, obstacles will inevitably come up. Instead of freaking out, have the optimism and confidence to treat them as just events that you will eventually find a way to overcome. Reframe the challenge and look for opportunity in it. All right, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks' time for the next episode where I'll be interviewing Jada Poon, who left her job as a lawyer to become one of the most sought-after photographers in Hong Kong. And if you like this episode, do hit subscribe and share with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. Oh, by the way, also wanted to let you guys know that I've started a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're interested to find out more, feel free to reach out to me and follow me on Instagram at ong. Jennifer underscore for more information. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you guys back here in two weeks.